JFK was hung like a cashew. He was a two-minute man. Jack Kennedy wanted to uh, 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 slip the schnitzel to the great women of the era over the course of two minutes, bullshit with them for a while, and send out for a club sandwich. That was Jack's deal. Listen, living, listening to Synchronon. Sick and wrong. Yes, you're listening to Synchronon. The Sick and Wrong, the world source for antisocial commentary. God, what a bunch of scumbags. Good evening. Welcome to Sick and Wrong, the world source for antisocial commentary. I'm one of your hosts, E. Simon. Hi, I'm Kate Bimbo. Happy America Day, Kate Bimbo. Uh, it means no- it means nothing to me. It's just Are you excited day. to move over here by a case of Natty Light, pack of Reds, and ride around your four-wheeler screaming USA at the top of your lungs while shooting roaming candles at your foreign neighbors? America. <laughs> are, you, are you planning to do that? <laughs> yeah, I'll just... For my well, I, even when I was there just recently, they were have there was. I remember I took a picture of it in like the Ralphs we went into. There was a whole stand of just USA America. cakes, cupcakes, just <laughs> America striped goods already. And I was like, this is a bit early, but okay. People get that's what and you that's, want. That's California. You go to the Midwest or Michigan or somewhere like that, you know. People get so into Fourth of July. It's like the holiday that they've been waiting for. They stock up on fireworks. You know, they get the uh, the, the red, white, and blue cupcakes, their hot dogs, and then they have a cookout. Are you a fan of cookouts? We just call them barbecues here. A barbecue. Uh, barbecues are all right, mate. Like, I'm not like they're the greatest food ever. Yeah, no, as a vegetarian, I couldn't really care less. But, but you know, I, I say this every year. No one ever invites me to a barbecue. I never get well, invited to my friends' barbecues. I'm, su- I'm surprised the women of America who are against um, the current like situation aren't just saying, fuck it, no July 4th this year. Let's fucking riot, because that's what I would do. Well, I think it's mostly all the, uh, the, the pro-life chicks. They love it. Um, but, you know, I get why... I'm not invited to barbecues. I totally understand because I would get too drunk and then I'd overshare graphic details about my colonoscopy and you're sitting there trying to shove a sloppy Joe, you know, in your pie hole. And here I am like, you know, telling about my, uh, the, the, the colite laxative I had to drink all night. No one wants to hear that, especially while they're Some eating sloppy do. Joe. What do, what do they call that? Joe, yeah, what do I. they call sloppy Joe in England? Like an untidy Oliver. <laughs> an untidy Oliver. That sounds like a porno I watched once from the 60s. Do you guys have Sloppy Joe? No, is it just a hot dog with chili on top? No, it's like, I don't even know really how to describe it. It's fucking gross. It's like ground up hamburger, but in like, I don't know, some kind of red sauce. And then you just put it in a bun and eat it. It's fucking gross. Oh, right. So, you know, you know when Roseanne... Remember Roseanne? I'm sure she loves Sloppy Roseanne, Joe. So I love Roseanne. But she opens up that loose meat sandwich shop. So that's a Sloppy Joe, is a loose meat sandwich. 
It's mince. We call it mince over here. Yeah, it's mince, but it's it's got it's the sauce. Like they sell this sauce called manwich sauce. It's like this red kind of tomato oh, barbecue sauce. I've had plenty of manwich sauce in my time. <laughs> I'm sure you have. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't. They don't do that. They don't just ground up beef and and put it in like a just a white bun, like a white bread. A bun. loose a loose meat sandwich. No, we never had loose meat sandwiches. But let me tell you, when I was growing up as a child watching Roseanne, I used to pester my mum to make that all the time, and she just would not do it. She's like, I am not putting meat mints inside a bread. It's not happening. You know, and I'm remember- glad she said no to me now. When uh, we moved to South Africa, uh, my mom like would still make sloppy joes because it's an easy recipe for mo- mothers to make. You know, you just grind grind up meat and put in like whatever that red sauce is, and then the that's all you sauce. that's all you have to do. Um, but so I became vegetarian, and so my mom was just like all verklempt, like I don't know what to do. So she was like, "Well, I'll make you sloppy tofu, David." And so it's oh, it's nice. just as gross as sloppy mince, you know, sloppy Joe. It's just like crushed up piece of tofu with the same gross red sauce. I hated it. Never ate it. So is it technically a sandwich or is it a meal? I mean, I don't know. It depends on what you define a meal. I mean, they would, you know, there was Sloppy Joe in, in, in the school cafeteria. Like that would be a lunch, you know, and then you'd get like two Sloppy Joe sandwiches. But fucking American kids will eat like eight also, I don't like sandwiches and I disagree with them because they do that in the French dip as well. I don't think bread should ever get wet. I'm putting that out there. Bread should never be wet. It shouldn't be soggy. I think that's gross too. No, it's gross. Like, just let bread be bread. It is the building structure of a sandwich and it should not have an opportunity to get wet. You know, I might be completely mistaken. I don't, I don't even know if Sloppy Joe is a staple of a 4th of July cookout. It's probably hot dogs <laughs> or hamburgers, I'm assuming. Chili dogs. Yeah, I would assume it. I they probably do chili. chili dogs. Oh, you know, we're forgetting about the bean dip. Yeah, bean dip. I thought was. I don't know if bean dip. Yeah, bean dip's probably also a Fourth of July thing. I don't know. You know, this week, angry millennials have a lot to discuss at the family cookout with their MAGA hat wearing uncle. So you mean me, my generation? Yeah, exactly. But I mean, did you hear? I'm sure you heard about the bombshell testimony from uh, Cassidy Hutchinson who is the uh, former aide to um, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, who is the uh, Chief of Staff for Trump. This is during the January 6th hearing. She testified um, about an altercation between Donald Trump and his own Secret Service to force the agents to take him to uh, Capitol Hill you know, to, during the ongoing insurrection on uh, January 6th. What's they Trump in his tiny hands going to do? Well, I mean, he was enraged. So... She said, um, this is uh, uh, um, Hutchinson, Cassie Hutchinson's testimony, under oath, she said that Tony Ornato, who was uh, Trump's White House deputy chief of staff, told her the story with Bobby Engel, who is Trump's Secret Service lead in the room. Ornato said, um, he, he went up to him and goes, did you hear what happened in The Beast today? And The Beast is the uh, you know, armored limousine that he, the president's driving around in. And he described how um, an irate Trump was yelling at Secret Service agents, attempting to transport him back to the White House. He said, I'm the fucking president. Take me to the Capitol now. Because that's where, you know, he had just given the speech to, at one of his rallies and everyone was rushing towards the Capitol and he wanted to meet them there. I don't know what he wanted to do. But he wanted to meet them there, and they drove him to the White House, mainly because 
well, I don't know if they were trying to avoid an insurrection. I think it's they couldn't give him the proper security detail in that scenario. I'm assuming that's right. probably why they took him back to the White House. But she recounted in detail, and everyone's horrified, it's all over the news, that there's a struggle for the steering wheel after Engel, the Secret Service agent, disobeyed the direct order from Trump. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle, grabbed at the steering wheel, and Mr. Engel had to grab the president's arm, grab Trump's arm, and he said, sir, you need to take your hand off the wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. And then Trump used his free hand to lunge at Bobby Engel, and this is what she said, that he grabbed his like clavicle like, right by his neck with his, his tiny, tiny little hands. hands. <laughs> Can I just say, it's always been one of my life fantasies that I am in a situation where I have to grab the wheel. Where somebody says, grab the wheel, like we're in Smokey and the Bandit. I've always wanted to be oh, in one of those drive? situations. Yeah, and then they get out and they're, they're doing whatever while we're driving. But usually that happens when it's like, I'm, you know, I'm lighting my bowl while I'm smoking and you just grab the wheel. And, <laughs> and I the, grab the wheel. Yeah. yeah so one day that'll happen and my life fantasies will be fulfilled. Yeah. Next time we drive to Vegas, America, I'm going to do a bump real quick. So here, take the wheel. Now we used to do that all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know what's interesting about uh, Hutchinson's testimony is it offers an ex- explanation for a longstanding mystery. Why did Trump repeatedly tell all his supporters at the rally that he would go to Capitol Hill with them, but then return back to the White House? And, you know, people were saying that, like, why, why didn't he show up at Capitol Hill? Well, Hutchinson's answer is that he didn't have a choice. They took him back. He wasn't allowed. Yeah. So anyway, after the testimony, now you have like Fox News immediately after the after that testimony came out. We're saying that Secret Service agents have disputed the claims that he assaulted or tried to grab the the wheel, and Engel and Ornato have both said that they um, that they're willing to testify under oath about it. So a lot of you know a lot of Secret Service agents. That's the thing. They're very most Secret Service agents are military. They're very right wing. You yeah. know, it's like so. I don't know. You know, I don't know if they're gonna sit there and be like, yeah, Trump. Grab my clavicle with his tiny little hands. With his he baby touched hands. my clavicle. <laughs> but sources within the Secret Service said that a description of a very similar incident with Trump angrily demanding to be taken to the Capitol um, and lunging you know, at the agents had been circulating amongst uh, the Secret Service staff for months after the event. So this oh, is. Oh, yeah, they'll all be gossiping. Well, we just found out about this because of the January 6th hearings, but people knew about it. I mean, this is, uh, you know, it's not a secret, you know, on, uh, on Capitol Hill. Um, but what's interesting about this, and this is kind of what inspired me to do a little research about uh, this week's topic, is the Secret Service often finds themselves in compromising positions, you know, because they have to protect the president, but then sometimes they're forced in front of the public eye. You know, I mean, uh, people might remember Hookergate with Obama. It happened when the Secret Service agents got all those hookers in Colombia. Very embarrassing. A lot, of, a lot of egg on the face of the Secret Service at that point. But the core duties of the Secret Service, and this is what's interesting. I didn't know about this. I always thought the Secret Service was just a branch you know, of, uh, of federal agents that just protected the president. But actually, it's twofold. They, they yeah. protect the president, vice president, and their families, but they also investigate financial crimes, including counterfeit money. It's because it gets pretty fucking boring just standing around the White House letting checkers in and out. They need like a side project 
to keep them entertained because you're talking about like a lot of people who are ex-military highly trained people you got to keep them going well i mean i guess i've always thought that uh you know especially with you know the security detail they have to give trump and all of his kids and his family it's like when, when do you have time to go investigate counterfeiters it's their side. It's their side hustle. <laughs> well, I always thought that would be like another branch, like the FBI or something. But anyway, we'll get into it. And I also read about this case uh, from the early '80s, where the Secret Service agents were investigating a counterfeiter who was passing fake bills at several Midwestern malls. Um, and this this counterfeiter they discovered became, was one of the most infamous, largely anonymous felons in American criminal history. Nice. So before we get into all that, I just want to say thanks to everybody out there who supports us on Patreon. I know I say it every week, but I was actually kind of blown away. We had a positive month this month. You know, usually <laughs> we kind of always balance out or we're just, you know, a little negative at the close of every month. But we actually had a positive month and uh, I've, I was kind of stoked. You know, that's the thing. The Patreon money, you know, this isn't our full-time gig. I don't think it ever will be. That's fine. No. Um, but it's a hobby, but it can be a, you know, kind of an expensive hobby. You know, you got to pay a lot of hosting fees and there's expense, you know, expenses, show expenses that we have to advertising, all sorts of stuff. So the money that normally would come out of pocket, you know, we, uh, we pay with Patreon. So we do really appreciate everybody for, uh, helping us keep the show going. Keeps you know? the lights on. It does. You know, it's, it's like, I don't have to pay out of my own. What the people are doing. Well, I don't have to pay yeah. out of my own money to do the show. Even though, I mean, we did for years, but it's kind of nice now that we have a Patreon that can, that can support it. So thank you to everybody out there uh, for, for helping us keep it, keep it sick and wrong. Anyway, here's a quick Patreon promo, and then let's chat about the, uh, this, this counterfeiter slash serial rapist caught by the Secret Service, otherwise known as the Mall Passer. Hi, guys. Stuart here. I'm just calling in to get this off my chest. All you listeners out there, why are you not signing up for the Patreon? Seriously, these two fine people do the show next to having a regular job, and you don't feel the need to support them. So sign up to the Patreon today. You're not helping a Jew through college, but through his midlife crisis. And Kate is packing her shit to live in California. Both of these things are not cheap. They give so much and ask for so little. So do it now and keep the show going. D and Kate, you're doing a great job. Love you guys. Stuart out. So Kate Rambo, there's a new book that came out by a by a, a Washington Post investigative journalist named Carol Leonig. Um, she's been covering the Secret Service for years, and she recently wrote a book called Zero Fail that digs into the landmark incidents of the agent's history. And oh, I'll get this book. Yeah, I'm going to pick this up too. Um, it definitely seems really interesting. Uh, she writes that her book is based on hundreds of hours of interviews, more than 180 people, including former and current members of the Secret Service and members of eight previous administrations. And many of these interviews were completely anonymous because they were, Brilliant. yeah, they were talking shit. Um, <laughs> uh, Leonig said the Secret Service is a silent witness to all kinds of American history. Some of it very tragic, JFK assassination, and some of it very controversial, you know, look at what just happened, you know, the testimony coming out from Hutchinson this week. Um, you know, th that's one thing. And she was saying, she was interviewed this week about this bombshell testimony that was coming out about Cassie Hutch from Cassie Hutchinson. And she said that the 
January 6 hearings laid bare two important things about the Secret Service. One, they hate to be in the public eye. They hate to be in the middle of a story and embroiling a controversial matter involving the people that they protect. You know, they just want to protect the boss and stay in the background, you know, um, seen but not heard. And the second thing it's revealed is the closeness it develops, almost a symbiotic relationship between a president and their protector. And so it's interesting, you know, I was kind of reading over um, the relationship between different presidents and the Secret Service over the years. So John F. Kennedy, JFK, they said he was a reckless president with an insatiable appetite for sex. That guy was a horny motherfucker. You're talking about a man who, like, tried to bed Blaze Star. You're talking about a man who totally fucked Gene Turney. Uh, tried to fuck Mar- Marlena Dietrichs, who had been fucking his dad. <laughs> and obviously the most famous is Marilyn. Yeah, no, this guy got around. I mean, he shagged. He was a shagger, um, which is kind of remarkable considering his, uh, his size. His health. <laughs> and his health. And yeah, yeah, his, so he, as a James Elroy so eloquently puts he hit a cashew dick he was a tiny dick and um he would he was a shit shag too i think gene turney said that he was wild wild and fast so he's just jackhammering into you it's like he's a rabbit fucker that's what he no wonder he had to wear a corset yeah um his code name the secret service had code names for all the presidents kennedy's code name was lancer and he had a, they said he had an insatiable appetite, which made the Secret Service very worried about his safety. Um, according, she interviewed some of his former detail, and they said the president would sometimes just sneak away from the agents and just go incognito, slip into an unmarked car and take off to go shag some uh, slut. Um, and for several hours, they didn't know where the president of the United States was. It's like a national emergency, if you think about it. You know, they must have been shitting themselves. It's like, dude, where'd he uh, go? I can't remember the shagging name, but he definitely he had a German prostitute that he favored. And he was also shagging Angie Dickinson. Like, there was nobody that this man wasn't bedding at the time. All these hot babes. Yeah, uh, they said that he courted this type of danger. It excited him. And he was trying to, like, you know, he was into, into the, this insatiable appetite for sexual conquest. But members of his details one. feared... That within, you know, the, all these random women that he met for Tris, there could be blackmail, poison. Maybe it's a setup. He could be murdered, you know, and they're not well, there to protect been, him. There has been that longstanding theory that they say Marilyn wasn't murdered. We all know Marilyn accidentally died. But they say that Marilyn was murdered because she she told um, John that she was going to release a tell-all about it. Yeah. And they say that he murdered her to stop her doing that. I don't think JFK cared about Marilyn. I don't know. I mean, maybe he had someone take her out. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, no. It didn't one, of the, uh, one of the members of a security detail, an uh, agent named Tim McIntyre, said he saw a parade of the president's lovers after he joined the agency in 1963. He and the other agents normally tasked with questioning the background of anyone who came into close range of the president weren't allowed to even ask the woman's names. They weren't even <laughs> allowed to ask their names. <laughs> well, because you'd be like, Oh, holy shit, that's Marlena Dietrich. Holy fucking shit. Because <laughs> you don't need to ask these women their names. You know that's Marilyn Monroe. Well, even though they didn't know their names or weren't allowed to ask their names, I mean, obviously they probably recognized some of them, they still had to give a short report about who was in the president's room when the next agent reported for the night shift at 10 o'clock. And if, uh, 
and you had to tell like the next shift, like the graveyard shift, the situation. The point of it was if the woman didn't come out by 4 a.m., that's when you start worrying. Oh shit! <laughs> they Especially also for a um, two minute man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she, they'd usually be out within fifteen. Um, yeah, but uh, Jackie O actually, uh, they, they also talk about all the uh, arguments that they would have because she was well aware of his uh, his tris and his infidelity, and I guess it really pissed her off. Um, oh, I bet. Uh, Jimmy Carter treated uh, the 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 Secret Service like dog shit. He, Not the um, peanut farmer. Yeah. Oh. He, uh, Carter treated with contempt the agents who, uh, helped and protected him. That's what it, these, these are the secret service agents she, uh, she interviewed who spoke anonymously for three and a half years. Um, this one agent named John Pasecki was on Carter's detail, including seven months of driving him in the presidential limousine back and forth. Carter never spoke to him. Not even once. Didn't even say like, Hey, oh. how you doing? That's so rude. Come on, dick. Jimmy. I thought Jimmy was supposed to be a bit of a sweetheart. Well, that's the thing. He had this, he tried to portray this image as a man of the people by carrying his own luggage when he traveled. But that was totally for show. When he was a candidate in 1976, he would often carry his own bags when the press was around. But as soon as they left, he'd just throw them over at the Secret Service. <laughs> what a dick. Jimmy. <laughs> What a dick. This is my favorite story that I read about him. It's, so he lived in Plains, Georgia. He was a Southern guy. Uh, Carter once tried to attack and kill a small dog with a bow saw. Apparently, the Secret Service agents had befriended this uh, stray dog, this little terrier that they'd seen running around, and they gave it the codename Dolphin. And when the dog ate some food that uh, Carter's wife, Rosalind, had put out from their Siamese cat, Carter was so enraged, he got the bow saw off a woodpile and tried to kill the dog. So the agent said, did- and well, the dog dodged the attack, but Carter insisted that they remove the dog from his, uh, from his home. Oh, poor dolphin. Where did dolphin end up? He was given to the press corps and so someone adopted it. Oh, that's nice. A nice <laughs> ending for dolphin. <laughs> um, they called Carter, his nickname was, or his codename was Deacon. Um, Ronald Reagan, his, they loved Reagan. Reagan's nickname or codename was Rawhide. I know why they love Reagan. They love Reagan because of Nancy. You know the rumors about Nancy, don't you? I heard she was like the blowjob queen of Hollywood at one time. She is the blowjob queen of Hollywood. That's who Reagan married. She would fucking blow anyone who walked past her path. Well, Reagan was such like a, you know, the symbol of conservatism. That's, I'm sure that's why they loved him. And his policies or whatever. And his wife was giving out the blowy. <laughs> I highly doubt she was giving all the sec- his security detail blowjobs, maybe. Um, but when Reagan in 1981 was shot by uh, Hinckley, uh, he was hit in the left lung, but he survived, even though his press secretary, James Brady, uh, died of the injuries um, from also being shot. Uh, Leonig writes, describes not the shooting in detail, but she also talked about the longstanding effects that the violence had on Reagan and First Lady Nancy Reagan. From then on, the president donned a bulletproof vest without complaint, wore it everywhere he went. He, I guess he told the Secret Service agents, were like, you need to do this, and he, he did it without complaint, wore it all the time. And Nancy became obsessed with astrology in order to gauge uh, Ronnie's risk level when he left the White House. Even <laughs> it's he had natural. To, well, he had to adjust his schedule based on her readings. Oh, bless. 
I love the fact that she's gone from giving out the blueies to just like look into the stars for when the blues will come. Big batshit hippie. Um, he said, if it makes you, f- I can't do a Reagan voice because if it makes you feel better, go ahead and do it. But be careful. It might look a little odd if it ever comes out. <laughs> and that's what he said about the blowjobs too. Probably. Um, I wonder if she gave good head, do you think? Of course she did. She fucking blew everyone. I love that iconic picture of her where she's sat on Mr. T's lap and she's giving him a little kiss on his forehead. Oh, that's the best. I wonder if she gave Mr. T a blowjob. I don't think there was a pickle within a mile of Nancy that she did not attempt to put down her throat. I think she was an expert at it. Sloppy Joes just were down. She could down it. President George H.W. Bush um, and First Lady Barbara Bush treated the Secret Service detail like their family. They, The like Secret the, Service loved the Bushes, both sets of Bushes. They loved the Bushes. Like on um, the Simpsons episode. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> that was that's one of my favorite <laughs> Simpsons. Um, George H.W. Bush's codename was Timberwolf. I can understand why they loved him because he was like, was he like the director of the CIA? Right, yeah. So he's risen up through the ranks and yeah. he probably knows them personally or will have heard of them. I want I want to be bestowed a nickname from these, the Secret Service. Timberwolf. They're fucking good at coming up with nicknames, aren't they? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how, like, how they apply to the to the individual, but... They're pretty cool. So they loved George H.W. Bush and Barbara Bush, but they did not like the successors, Hillary and Bill. Oh. Clinton. Yeah, when President oh, Clinton, whose, nick- whose codename was Eagle, and uh, First Lady Hillary Clinton, whose codename was Bitch. Um, I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when they arrived at the White House in 1993, there was an immediate culture clash. Completely different than uh, what it was for the past four years with uh, you know George H. W. Bush, um, the uh, the future senator and secretary of state and presidential hopeful was no cookie baking you know political spouse. You know she, she was, was the Secret Service's least popular first lady on record. They hated Hillary. I, That's because Hillary was the wheels, though, wasn't it? I mean, Bill was just like this guy from Arkansas, and Hillary's the one who was really like the real hardcore one, the real well, politician. I think they were used to, you know, over the past decades of like, you know, Barbara Bush, you know, would would bake them cakes and things like that, and like just did what. Oh yeah, Hillary's know, not what doing an that. American housewife would do. Yeah, and uh, you know, she didn't. He didn't. She, the, the Bushes would invite the Secret Service over, you know, for barbecues and things like that. Whereas the new First Lady, Hillary Clinton, cursed her husband in private. And she completely was dismissive with the, with the agents. Uh, they were shocked by her foul mouth and dual nice. personality. Um, but you know what's interesting? Uh, this uh, agent named uh, Cheryl Montgomery, one of the few black female Secret Service agents at the time, she said the male agents were biased for, uh, against Mrs. Clinton from the beginning. They saw the First Lady as a sharp thinker who spoke to her husband as an equal and was trying to yeah, help good. him. Good for Which... him. Well, yeah, she's the one who fucking put him in the White House. He would have been, he's only in the White House because of Hillary. No I think so too. Music. I mean, he had a personality. I think he was charming, you know, and charismatic. But it's like you know, behind the scenes, she was calling the shots. Fuck yeah, she wore the pants, and I don't think they liked that. Well, I guess the Clintons were also worried that the uh, Secret Service was loyal to the Bush family and was leaking information, which I <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. 
you know? Yeah, if it they had, were. Well, it had been a while since a Democratic president had been in the Oval Office. Um, but I guess a lot of the conservative agents came to enjoy and even admire Clinton's personality, despite the political differences. But many of the agents were also witness to his extramarital affairs, which put them in a very difficult position. When they're going to Burger King and <laughs> ordering burgers for him after his nights of trysts. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, it was very similar to, to, to the Kennedys. You know, if you think about yeah. it, JFK's time in the White House. Um, the president, Clinton, would pretend to go to the gym to work out. But instead, he would have a tryst while the agents had to stand by. And then afterwards, he would splash water on his face to make it look like he was sweating from the workout. I mean, it is technically a workout. He's burned some calories. I, I guess more or less. Yeah. Um, they said... They said they couldn't even count how many times Clinton would say, I want to make an off-the-record movement tonight. Wink, wink. And that uh, meant that he was going to go voice. visit somebody in a hotel. <laughs> Can you do a Clinton accent? I want to make an off-the-record movement tonight. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> um, they called Obama renegade. Awesome. Oh, yeah. God, I really want a secret service nickname renegade beats lancer for my favorite now yeah renegade's Renegade. cool i kind of like, I, I like timberwolf i think that's my favorite so far but you know the secret service had a difficult time during obama first of all he received four times as many death threats as any president at the time sometimes he'd get as many as 30 a day and they got to investigate everyone yeah they got to deal with that uh, there was also an alarming number of security breaches um, during Obama's tenure. You know, they even had, a, at one point, they let a guy who was carrying a, a concealed weapon, a concealed firearm, in the elevator with Obama. Why? It's your one job. Well, no, they've got two jobs, but it's your main job. Come on, guys. I know, I guess they didn't, uh, they didn't even, you know, catch the guy. And then there are also some, uh, you know, major scandals during Obama's presidency. Uh, the one I mentioned before was an international embarrassment in Colombia when 12 agents and officers partied and legally hired prostitutes. It was when Obama was visiting Colombia. They called it Hookergate. That actually uh, inspired the, uh, the, the book, Zero Fail. Um, and then there was uh, another time, March 2014, two years after Hookergate, uh, where he was going to, uh, to a hotel to some conference in the Netherlands. <laughs> two Secret Service agents were discovered passed out in the hallway. <laughs> I mean, come on, you're in the Netherlands. What are you going to do? You're going to go out, party, smoke some weed, drink some fucking strong beers, some strong Bavarian beers, and pass out. They're well, the president, people. Obama, was pissed off. You can imagine that guy pissed off. I'm sure it was really oh, menacing. Yeah. But he controlled his temper. But the uh, director of, uh, of the agency at the time could feel how upset he was. And he said, you know what? The problem with the Secret Service is you don't have enough women in the Secret Service. And the director is like, we're working on it. Oh, what, to control the situation or so they can bang them? I think it's because uh, women aren't going to be like hiring a bunch of hookers. Well, and, that's you know, true. Because the Secret Service is kind of a boys club. Yeah, well, that's also true. You know? Um, Trump was widely considered to be the chaos candidate for many reasons, as, as I'm sure you could surmise here. Uh, his nickname was Mogul, which also <laughs> seems really fitting. Mo Mogul does fit him. Uh, I'll say that. Um, they say when he was on the uh, presidential campaign trail in 2015, his rallies were so volatile that that's when the agents started calling him the chaos candidate 
because the danger danger level at those appearances uh, frightened them. I mean, it like freaked them out. You know, they said that uh, they had to hold. You know, they had you know all these supporters that were coming there armed to the teeth at these rallies, and this is what well, they had I'm, to deal with. I remember when that twenty-year-old British kid with autism went there and took the gun at the policeman and was going to shoot him. Yeah, I mean, you have pr- pretty much almost everybody in the audience has a concealed weapon. You know, it wouldn't have been that difficult. And, you know, you got, what, like 30 Secret Service agents there trying to protect him? Maybe less? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's got yeah. uh, to be nerve-wracking. Um, detail agents asked that the barriers used to be held to, to hold the spectators back pushed an additional 10 feet back from the stage to give them time to react in case something happened. But- Nowadays, the guns are just so modern. I think those extra 10 feet would probably just blow his head clean off his shoulders. <laughs> but Trump also often ridiculed the secret agents that were, you know, in his detail. Um, First Lady Melania Trump had a, uh, an agent named Mindy O'Donnell. And Trump was like, I want her removed from the position as the lead agent for uh, Mrs. Trump's uh, detail. Because he was bothered by the chunky high heels that she wore on the job. He said, what? he said, she's too short. How do you run in those heels? I can probably run faster than you, Trump. What's the time you fucking ran? Orange. He also had concerns about Secret Service agents being too overweight for the job. Says him. <laughs> this is what he said. I want these fat guys off my detail. How are they going to, be, how are they going to protect me and my family if they can't even run down the fucking street? You know, what's, you know what's awful is that these people are in his employ and it's like part of their, you know, oath is that they give their lives for that president. But if I'd have been working for Trump, I'd have been like, you know, if somebody gets a gun. <laughs> so I uh, let this guy go by me, okay? The, yeah, the guy with the AR-15, okay I didn't see that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I read this hilarious story about uh, Tiffany and Vanessa Trump. So uh, Tiffany was Trump's youngest daughter and Vanessa was married to Don Trump Jr. Apparently, they got inappropriate and dangerously close to several members of the security detail while Trump was in office. Oh, I bet that happens. Yeah, Tiffany completely denies it. I'm surprised that Oliver Stone it. hasn't made a film about that yet. Yeah, I don't know. I thought he actually was a Trump fan, Oliver Stone. Oliver Stone is batshit crazy. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah he's like straight up queuing on at this point. Anyway... The Secret Service, interesting uh, organization. And uh, as you can see, they have to, you know, they kind of walk a fine line from, you know, trying to protect somebody anonymously, you know, who they're the, the, the you know, leader of the free world, while at the same time being thrust into uh, these compromising situations. Um, and so most people obviously have heard of the Secret Service. You see the guys, they're wearing the black suits with the, uh, the, the you know, the, the, the earpiece. The earpieces. And the black, uh, the black shades. Um, but a lot of people don't know much about it, but the secret service actually predates the FBI. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they were around. The FBI is fairly modern. People forget the FBI is fairly modern. Yeah. They, they, I mean, well, you know, in the uh, 20th century, but, but yeah, the, but they, the uh, secret service was around definitely before them. And in the, in the beginning, you know, their primary, um, uh, focus wasn't on protecting the president. It was actually on uh, on battling against counterfeit money. Uh, 
So one of the largest issues the nation faced as it was recovering from the Civil War uh, was the battle against counterfeit money. And in 1865, it was estimated that up to one half of all U.S. currency was actually fake. And so the United States Treasury Department found itself in desperate need of a criminal justice agency dedicated to fighting the counterfeiters. And thus, the uh, Secret Service was established to do that as a branch of the Treasury Department. And so for the next 36 years, the agency's primary function was to restore the American people's uh, confidence in the Treasury and uh, the U.S. currency. But the role of the program changed significantly in 1901 when uh, President William McKinley was assassinated uh, while attending the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, New York. And so now they're like, okay, well, this federal agency needs to be responsible for protecting the president. So that became their primary focus. Secondary focus was investigating uh, counterfeiters. And so today... Uh, there's probably 6,500 people approximately in a Secret Service, and they have jobs ranging from special agents to administrative professionals. But the core duties are still the same, protection of the president and investigating financial crimes. And so agents of the Secret Service uh, can carry firewar- firearms, they can execute warrants, they can make arrests without warrants, and they have uh, primary jurisdiction to investigate any threats made against a protectee um, you know, who they're, you know, the president or government official, or financial crimes, you know, that could affect the treasury. You know, I was reading uh, when Eminem came out with that song about Trump. Do you remember that? It was like, yeah, I forget, yeah. what, I forget what it was called. Secret Service had to go. He had to be interviewed by the Secret Service because of some of the things he said about like banging Tiffany and and yeah. Wouldn't that be amazing that day? You're like, I'm going to interview Eminem today. So <laughs> yeah, I cool. imagine they were like, we got to go interview Eminem. Um. Uh, the protection from, uh, from the Secret Service is provided to ex-presidents and their spouses for the remainder of their lives after they leave offices or after they leave the office. Um, and agents are often called upon to protect visiting dignitaries from other countries. So now, I was reading about this particular case in 1983, in the early 80s. The Secret Service were investigating a counterfeit operation and they uncovered something much more sinister. I don't think this happened often for them but it did in this situation, which led to the arrest and conviction of a counterfeiter and serial rapist named, named uh, Mike DeBartolabin. It's a difficult name to pronounce, yeah. <laughs> it's got a lot of uh, syllables. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting story. This guy uh, was known as the mall passer because he was a prolific counterfeiter that operated like throughout the Midwest. And uh, when the Secret Service investigated the crime and they looked in his storage locker, they uncovered something that blew their minds. Much more sinister yeah, it, than a counterfeiting operation. It was like how, probably, you know, how Ted Bundy would keep his favorite vaginas in his, like, lockers and stuff. <laughs> he just opened up a locker and it was a, a vagina. Just a bunch of vaginas like, fall out? Just, yeah, it just fell out. So James Mitchell, nicknamed Mike DeBartolabin, was uh, born 1940, March 20th, 1940. What is that? Is that a... Uh... Is that a Pisces March or 20th. No, no, that's uh, Aries. It was an Aries, okay. Um, he was known, he was an American convicted kidnapper, rapist, Oh, no, sorry, you are right, sorry. Pisces. It is a Pisces. Oh, I can't it believe is a Pisces. I just totally pulled people. that out of my ass. Um, 20, 22nd, I think, is the uh, cutoff point. DeBarta Laban was a, was a convicted kidnapper, rapist, counterfeiter, and suspected serial killer, whose nickname oh, wow. was the Mall Passer, Due to his practice of passing counterfeit bills in shopping malls, 
um, across the U.S. Uh, after his arrest, um, they, they found evidence linking him to much more serious sex crimes. Eventually, he was sentenced to uh, 375 years in a federal prison. Wow. Um, so here's some background about the guy. He was uh, born in ni- March 1940 in Little Rock, Arkansas, the second of three children, um, born to, uh, to his father, uh, James Mitchell De- DeBartolaben Sr., and mother Mary Lou Edwards DeBartolaben. Uh, they were a military family who uh, moved frequently. It always seems like a lot of serial killers come from military families. Yeah, it does. And this is also a war baby. So you're already getting the worst type of dad possible. And also, can I say, as a middle child, I understand. Only middle kids get it. Being a middle child is actually the hardest. And yeah, I'm not surprised to tend to a serial killer just by being a middle child. Maybe. I don't think it was that hard for me. It was hard for you. Come on, dear. <laughs> you 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 had the entire weight of the family put on your shoulders. Whereas I was I a little the angel. Blame of the family put on my shoulders. In 1945, the family moved to Austin, Texas, and that's when James Senior was shipped out to the South Pacific for nine months. Uh, the family then moved to Kentucky. Then they re- relocated to Frankfurt, Germany, and that's when uh, James Senior was promoted to lieutenant colonel. Then the family moved to the Netherlands where he served as a military advisor, and then he took a uh, federal service post in Albany, New York. So they moved all around, like all around the yeah. world, which it's has to affect the kid, you know? And it's all to kind of shitholy places, too. There's, you know, there's not a place there where I was like, oh, he can he can have a nice life there. Yeah, but he probably went to, like, you know, they stayed on, didn't, didn't they have, like, military housing and military schools? Yeah, you'll stay on base. You know? Just, and you don't really have life. any lasting friendships because you're moving around every couple of years. Yeah. Um, and not to mention the marriage between his parents was unstable and chaotic. Both you don't say. <laughs> both mommy and daddy were having many extramarital affairs. Um, at one point, his parents had considered divorcing, but then they decided to stay married for the sake of the children, which I think a lot of parents did back then. Is this my um, parents? Am I this kid? This is a story about me. Well, I don't think you would have ever even had the kid, but you definitely are very similar to his mother, who is a sexually promiscuous and emotionally unstable alcoholic. Hey, <laughs> I'm pretty stable emotionally. <laughs> I try to be. <laughs> um, her behavior could become very violent at times. Uh, the mother often neglected the kids when the husband was away, uh, preferring to spend much of her time at bars, drinking and picking up random men. I don't blame her. <laughs> so Mike was pretty much raised by his sister, his older sister, Linda. Um, it was during this period that the Bartolaben began to develop a deep, long-standing hatred of his mother, <laughs> which eventually crystallized. Yeah, which would eventually crystallize into a general hatred of women. You don't say. <laughs> Not surprised. <laughs> um, the Bartolaben, as a child, was uh, subjected to considerable abuse by uh, both his mother and his father. Um, the father was very, you know, harsh, stern man, very critical of his kids, never praised them. Um, when he was younger, when Mike was younger, his father would punish him by holding his head underwater in a bathtub, as well as switching him. This is, this is bringing back flashbacks. <laughs> uh, according childhood. to his siblings, these punishments began before he was old enough to attend school. What are you saying? Drunk dad would hold your head underwater? No, he never did that. But um, my dad, my dad didn't need to use physical violence because he had just mental control over you. I've, I've watched my dad make adult adults cry. 
by just things he would say to them. Well, that's not hard to do to English people. He's so, it was such everything. a critical man. If my dad didn't like you, you had to live in a kind of a fear of him. I didn't have one boyfriend that was not scared of my dad. They were all terrified of him. Oh, your dad would have loved me. Um, in adolescence, DeBartolaven began to exhibit uh, antisocial behavior. Not surprising. Same. And uh, at age 16 in 1956, it's reported that he first physically assaulted his mother that year. Good for him, though. Yeah. Like, good, good for him. I'm kind of on his side a little. There's no real record about what sparked this violent encounter, but apparently over the years, he had threatened his mother many times with a hatchet and a letter opener. <laughs> He just wow. grabbed the hatchet, just threatened her. Well, she sounded like, uh, you know, not not the the, dick. the most devoted mom in the world. No, and um, I think a letter opener is a very eloquent weapon to threaten someone with. So he, he also gets points for that. I'll give him points. Uh, I think so, too. It's romantic. Uh, later that year, still at the age of 16, he purchased two handguns and ammunition with a friend. It's, not, it's comforting to know that we have the same gun laws that they did back in 1956. Yeah, when you know. the weapons were so less advanced as well. Um, a couple months later, he was arrested and convicted for his first felony, which was uh, possessing a concealed firearm. And this was the first of many arrests, including arrest for sodomy, attempted murder, and kidnapping. Now, this is going to come years later. Um, he was expelled from uh, his high school in 1957 and never, never tried to seek any uh, formal education after that. He instead, he went into the U.S. Air Force, which, not surprising, he joined the military when you get expelled from high school. Hey, um, so the Air Force lets you in even if you don't have a high school diploma. I don't think the military really gives a shit. Although, I always thought the Air Force was like the intelligence branch. Yeah. yeah, it was harder to get into. Like, if you have any physical, uh, def- even if you're short-sighted, you can't get into the Air Force. Well, this is in the 50s, like, what, right after the Korean War? So I think it was, I think it's different now. I think you definitely have to graduate high school now yeah. before you can join the military. But back then, they're just like, we need people to die for the country. Yeah. Come on. In you come, Sonny you know, Jones. As long boy. as you're not in a wheelchair, come on, we'll give you a gun. Um, so when he enlisted in the Air Force, he was stationed briefly at Lackland Air Force Base in Texas, only after a year of being there, he was court-martialed for disorderly behavior, and he spent two months in the base stockade. Um, he was then ordered by the Air Force to visit a psychiatrist uh, because he kept going AWOL. And so at the age of 18, he was dishonorably discharged from the Air Force, and he moved to Fort Worth, Fort Worth Texas uh, to live with some relatives. It was there that he tried, to, he tried going back to school again, but after three months, he was expelled. So he never got a high school degree. Right. But a lot of intelligent people don't necessarily have the best education. Yeah. Not saying the same for everyone, but like. Well, even without a GED or high school degree, he still met a woman and married his first wife in uh, August 1959, Linda Ware. Uh, But three weeks later, they were separated. Um, It was also (laughs) that month. Yeah, just it just lasted three weeks. Well, we beat them. (laughs) (laughs) We've beaten this couple. (laughs) <laughs> also that month, he was arrested for attempted robbery with an accomplice, and then uh, he was involved in a string of auto thefts and was sentenced to five years probation for that. Some lenient um, judges back then, I must say. Yeah. Um, because he wasn't in prison, he was able to uh, hook up with an unknown woman who uh, he knocked up and fathered a premature daughter. And lucky for him, she was born stillborn. So uh, he didn't have to deal with that. Um, but then later... You know, it's at the age 17, uh, he met Charlotte Weber, um, and he started courting her. At the time, 
the Bartolavan lived at home with his parents, terrorizing his family. Uh, both bet. his parents feared him and deemed him capable of killing them. Actually, I, I take it back. He was 19 when he met uh, when Charlotte. And so, but he was living at home. And uh, yeah, and his parents com- were completely frightened of him at this, at this point. I mean, I imagine you could, you know, you, you could subdue your kid. You could hold your kid's head underwater when he's like six. But when he's 19, he has firearms and he's a, he's a felon. Yeah, I guess he'd yeah. be a little scary well, at that point. That reminds me of him. Have you seen the Charles Bukowski documentary to go off on a complete tangent? I don't think I ever saw that. What's it called? It's a really, I think it's just called Bukowski. But it's obviously him when he's older and they go back to his childhood home. For anyone who knows about Charles Bukowski, you know about he had a very similar upbringing. And he talks about the time when his dad used to take him into the bathroom and would beat him with just like belts, switches. And it got to the point where Charles is old enough now and he just turns around and he like raises his fist to his dad. And his dad is like in fear of him because suddenly like his son that he spent his freaking lifetime beating is now big enough to beat the shit out of him. And... Like, yeah, the rules become the reversed tables have at turned. that point. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think also um, the Bartolaban was uh, subject to a violent outburst, lit fires in his room and other rooms in the house, and also kicked the doors in. So he had a bit of a temper, this guy. So, Inherited from both parents, I would say, because both his parents are unhinged. Nonetheless, Charlotte, bless her heart, described the Bartolaban as a handsome young rebel with whom she was enthralled. <laughs> I kind of also think I might have fancied him a little too. Just like in those times, everyone was like wearing black leather, good looking guy. Back hair, and he's got, you know, an attitude problem. He's like a Shangri-La song, right? I probably would have fancied him. In March 1960, he impregnated Charlotte. And on June 9th, the same year, he married her. Um, he even uh, fathered a daughter named Bethine with her. Uh, Charlotte Ew. became pregnant again with another child, but was forced by Michael to give it up for adoption. He only wanted one. Uh, yeah, called Bethine. Bethine. That is such a fat girl's name. That is a fat Please. girl's name, yeah. When I just call her Beth, which is also kind of a fat girl name. Yeah, Beth. Well, I do. That's one of my favorite Kiss songs, though. I love Beth. Beth. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, believe it or not, DeBarla Davin had five different wives. And the last one had a dissociative identity, identity disorder, which I imagine must have turned him on. Well, really, he had 20 wives then, <laughs> if she's got all these different personalities. So let's get into the counterfeiting, okay? Yeah. Um, so in the early 80s, Secret Service agents were investigating a string of counterfeiting cases in the Midwest, and they all seemed very similar. A man would enter a mall with a wad of counterfeit $20 bills. He'd make a small purchase at each store in the mall, and then would get the remainder of the cash has changed, like legit cash has changed. So he's basically just laundering the money at all these different uh, stores. Do you think he's buying like pretzels and what is it? Those orange juleps? <laughs> what are those drinks Hot that you like? pretzels. Uh, no, they're orange Julius. That's, what they're That's called. it. He's getting a pretzel and orange Julius. He's going to go see a film, a slice of pizza. He's having a great day at the mall. Yeah, no, he's just going there like, uh, you know, making money while spending money. Um, the Secret Service wasn't overly concerned at, at first, about apprehending the forger of the bills. But by the end of 1980, the had had passed over $30,000 worth of notes in 38 different wow. states. So this dude just traveled from town to town, hitting up all the malls near the, near the highway. 
He's like Dan Bell doing all the abandoned malls. I bet this guy went to all of these malls that are now abandoned. Two years later, 1982, he managed to pass over 130 grand worth of counterfeit bills in 44 states. I kind of admire him a little. Yeah, I mean, this dude just drove around with, what, like a couple suitcases filled with uh, fake cash, and then there's a bag of real cash. What a way to make a living as well, just having a day at the mall. Well, at this point, he became a top priority of the counterfeit division of the Secret Service. They're like, we got to catch this guy. So uh, because of his method of passing the bills in the malls, they called him the mall passer. And so now they started talking uh, to, to store employees in Kentucky, Minnesota, and Colorado, and they were able to get a composite sketch of the mall passer. So they described him as about 5'9 to 5'10, 160 to 170 pounds, black hair, with a receding hairline, dark oh, no. frame eyeglasses, and around 35 years old. Would he not wear wigs, though? You'd think he would change up your appearance to each one. I would do that. Well, he did. So I think, uh, some, I think some, some people described him differently. Um, so now the Secret Service was distributing the sketch of malls and different you know, law enforcement agencies in all these different towns. Um, agents learned that from mall employees who had interactions with the mall pastor, that he was actually typically well-dressed and uh, he would employ disguises, as you said before, with fake beards, mustaches, and wigs. He also avoided male and older female clerks. He would seek out young women and girls who he could distract through conversation while they would ring up his low-priced purchases. He wasn't purchasing, you know, $200 items. He was just purchasing something for like 30 bucks, 40 bucks. Yeah, and then giving a, a high-denomination note and getting the money back. Mostly 20s, but yeah, like at the time, though, that's a pretty higher de- denomination. Um, but he would like, you know, he was charming. He would chit-chat he, these girls. And what woman, tell me- chatty what, cafe. Tell me what woman's not going to swoon over a mustache and wig combo. Uh, me? I would totally fall for it. I love a good yeah. mustache on a man. So Secret Service eventually caught up to him. So it was May 25th, 1983. They'd been searching for him for about three years at this point. Um, they found out that uh, DeBartolaben had entered a mall in Knoxville, Tennessee. He purchased several small items. Store clerks, who had been alerted earlier by the Secret Service, called mall security because they recognized, the, you know, from the composite sketch, they recognized the mall passer. By the time DeBartolaben realized that he'd been identified, um, it was too late. and He was immediately arrested. So while he was in custody, he refused to speak to, to answer any questions, refused to speak to anybody, didn't admit to any crimes or discuss any of these counterfeiting charges that were brought against him. It's so all right. You know, you know, I think that's as one just deny until you get caught, you know, until they can well, prove I mean, you. Well, I mean, it's your wrong. right to also not talk unless there's a lawyer present. So Yeah. He just wouldn't answer any questions. So whether or not, obviously, he didn't want to incriminate himself. But the main objective of the Secret Service with one of these cases is to locate the printing plant. You don't have anything unless you find the printing plant. There's no way to stick the charges on the person. This really reminds me of, um, have you seen the film? It's actually one of my favorite Spielberg films, Catch Me If You Can. Oh, yeah. You know, I did see that years ago. It's really, really good. And yeah, that whole scene where um, Tom Hanks catches Leonardo DiCaprio in the hotel room and he's got all this counterfeit shit out. This is totally like this. That's what they're looking for. Well, that's what they want to find. So the agents who were investigating was a guy named Dennis Foos, Greg Mertz, and Stretch Stevens. I want to be called Stretch. Stretch. 
And so uh, they took his keys and they found his uh, car at the mall, his Chrysler, and they searched it. And when they were in the Chrysler, they found guns, thousands of dollars in counterfeit bills, a substantial quantity of pornography, makes sense, <laughs> uh, portable pharmacy of legal and illegal drugs, 18 different license plates from a variety of states, nine forged driver licenses, and uh, a mail-order police badge. And there are also uh, dozens of paper bags filled with inexpensive merchandise, which Secret Service calls the proceeds of uh, counterfeit passing. So he had like a bunch of like just random socks and oven mitt. He had a new dog collar that he bought. Just a bunch of random items that he was just exchanging for cash. But they didn't find the press or the printing supplies. They couldn't find a plant. So that's what they needed. So then they went to his bachelor pad and they found his, his bachelor pad was kind of just like a, just a dirty single dude's, you know, unimpressive uh, apartment. I'm imagining like Harrison's apartment. There's a mattress on the floor. There's a couple of flashlights. Kind of in a TV. Yeah. Not much in there, but they did find a phone book that had a business card for a place called Landmark Mini Storage in Alexandria, Virginia. So they thought, okay, this is probably where his printing plant is. It's at the storage facility. So they went over there and uh, spoke to uh, the, the woman that worked there. And she was like, oh, yeah, this weird guy, you know, he's, uh, he's got this. She took him over to his unit. And so they opened it up. And over the next three hours, um, they found evidence of crime so heinous that it, it haunted them for the rest of their lives. Oh, even better. Yeah. So they found a single aluminum printing plate. $52,000 worth of counterfeit money. So here's the plant. A much of it sorted into stacks, graded A, A minus, and B plus. So he like, this guy knew what he was doing here. And yeah. if you think about it, it had to have been much more difficult to counterfeit back then, you know, than it is now. I don't know. I think the technology always keeps up with the technology, with what you're needing it to do. Well, I'm just saying they didn't have scanners or 3D printers or anything like they do now. However, the money's probably more difficult to counterfeit than it was back then. Yeah. You know? I mean, my dad was an amazing graphic designer. I easily think he could have forged notes, paper notes. I think if you have the knowledge and the know-how, I don't think it's actually probably that hard. Yeah, the skill. Uh, they found a camera tripod, eye bolts, a man's hat with a blood-stained visor, a device for punching out auto-ignitions, car thief standard tool, um, fake IDs, homemade audio tapes, and photographs of sex slangs, a pair of women's bloody underpants with a severely distended elastic band, whips, a dildo, and another bag containing what Greg Mertz took to be, in his own words, a death kit, shoelaces, a choker chain, KY jelly, and handcuffs. And that's what Lenora f- threw away for Harrison. <laughs> I was about to say, it sounds like Harrison's like a, a secret suitcase. Um, so they took all this evidence back to the field office in Washington. And uh, Special Agent Greg Mertz was looking through the, the, the items and he listened to one of the tapes. And the tapes had intense and disgusting torture sessions with women. And I tried to find some audio recordings. I couldn't find any. Um, they begged their tormentor to either stop or kill them. And a lot of it appeared to be scripted and revealed a man full of self-hatred who wanted uh, to experience the pain in others in order to get aroused. This guy's fucked up, isn't he? Sexual sadist, you know, for sure. 
Um, so they tried to turn it over to the FBI, but the FBI didn't want to deal with it at the time. They said typically uh, their investigations uh, worked, you know, there's a victim and then they work towards finding the offender. But this way, they didn't really know any of the victims at this point. So they started searching. Um, a, they had a database and they're trying to tie crimes to DeBartle Laban in all the different malls that he was at. And sure enough, you know, they found a lot of victims, uh, some right. living, a lot that they suspect, you know, that he murdered. Um, but the actual number of his victims will never be known. And he, ref- you know, he refused to talk about it or brag about any of his crimes or admit guilt the whole time he was in prison. Okay. I can't, um, I actually always, I hate when the killers do like a Gacy or a Bundy and they sit there and tell go, oh, it's because of my addiction to pornography and boo-hoo-hoo. I kind of admire it more when they are just like stone cold sons of bitches. Well, he denied it ever happened. Yeah. So, well, so it was a government yeah. conspiracy against him. But the Secret <laughs> Service believed that he'd been preying on women for up to 18 years before his arrest. So if you think about it, just con- comparing to Ted Bundy, Ted Bundy's killing spree lasted for five years and resulted in deaths of, as far as we know, I don't know, 28 to 100 women, probably 30 to 100 women. That's what they say. But again, they also don't know how long. They they say that Bundy could have been doing his first murders um, and rapes since he was 15. Yeah, We'll just possibly. never know. But Bundy admitted to 30 slayings, whereas DeBartoleben, you know, is believed to commit his first murder in 1965, and that was 18 years before he's finally caught. So if you do the math, wow. that's a lot of, lot of victims there. And he's going across the whole country too. Yeah. And then that's the thing, from town to town. And he would often pose as a law enforcement officer, gain the trust of his victims before forcing them to do his will. And those that survived the attack said that he would yell a lot, swear at them, force them to perform degrading acts. And he could never, he never could maintain an erection, which made him oh even angrier. God. Not yeah. surprising. He's a bit like um, Sutcliffe then. One girl reported that he uh, said he wanted to get back at women because he'd had a wife who'd given him a raw deal. <laughs> oh, boo-hoo. <laughs> Often uh, he would take photos of his victims naked and engaging in, in uh, forced sexual acts, and then he would threaten to use the photos against him if they ever went to uh, the police. You know, a typical power move. Um, a couple of the victims here, 1978, September 3rd, he kidnapped a woman named Lucy Alexander, repeatedly raped and sodomized her, forced him to for- perform fellatio on him, and then just released her in like a random area. A year later, 1979, he kidnapped Elizabeth Mason, choked her, banged her head against the wall until she lost consciousness, and then just left her for dead in an abandoned warehouse. Um, he uh, kidnapped a... Uh, uh, a realtor named, uh, what was her name? Um, uh, Jean McFall. Uh, her body was later found in the attic of a new home, uh, lashed to a rafter by a ligature on her throat. She was fully clothed and had two puncture wounds to the heart. Oh but he was God. never charged with her murder. This guy's vicious. Oh, he's vicious. Um, he kidnapped a woman named Lori Jensen, took her to his home, and for 24 hours raped and sodomized her. Um, forced her to masturbate using an oversized dildo for him, demanded that she call him daddy, and then took pictures and audio taped her throughout the ordeal, and then just released her right a couple blocks away from her house. There are so many men listening to this with a chill right now. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> for sure. Um, 
Uh, the Secret Service also interviewed his wives, who, also, who all suffered from similar horrors to the ones suffered by his victims. Uh, agents believe that he had practiced his fantasies on the wives prior to acting them out on the women he kidnapped. Which I think a lot of serial killers did that. I think, yeah, a lot of them will all try to do that. Or like, I think Gary Ridgway's wife said that they just had a normal, normal sexual. Like, he yeah. wanted sex all the time and she didn't have a high sex drive. So that's why he went out and killed. He's the Green River killer, right? Yeah, Gary yeah. Ridgway. And, and BTK, I thought, had a more or less normal. Well, he didn't have a normal sex life with his wife, but I mean, they were sexually active together. Yeah, and then in his off time, he's <laughs> out there. Doing shit um, like this. The Bartolaban's third wife was interviewed in court for the cases against him. And uh, she testified that he would say, often say, all women were whores, sluts, and tramps, and they asked for what they got. Well, <laughs> <laughs> some um, of us may. Agents found out that the object of his most malicious thoughts was his fourth wife, Karen. He hated Karen. He was 30, she was only 18. And uh, he wanted to control her completely. And he actually forced her to participate in a lot of his criminal uh, schemes. Um, but he subjected her to different forms of humiliation, domination, and, and, and she was terrified of him, even after he was out of, their, out of her uh, life. Uh, but his hatred for Karen in particular was so intense that he would often mention her to the rape victims. So I think he was oh, like, going- you know, raping <laughs> Karen by proxy. Well, I could just imagine him going, that was all the money we had, Karen. Come on, Karen. <laughs> Rest in peace, Ray The Secret Service found, a, 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 among the evidence, a detailed description of a, a script called Scenario that he had written. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, mostly about Karen. But it, in it, there was, it was all in like numbered points. One was, tell me about the pain. Why? Necessary? Question mark. Describe it. Details. I need more details. How does it feel? Convince me that you like it. Number two, tell me you feel humiliated and degraded. How? Number three, tell me how you like for me to bite your tits, slap your face, bite you in the ass, make loud surprise noises. Not quite sure what that means. Was he going to fart or something? Um, <laughs> uh, bite or cigar or whip them at the moment of ejaculation. Number five, hair. Pull as a mane and make them say arf, bow wow, or nay. <laughs> is this like um, Ray Parker in the house? David Ray Parker? Is that him here suddenly? <laughs> I don't know. But I mean, it's like, what, you can't memorize this? You got to have your little script so you can be like, oh, yeah, I forgot to do the hair thing. Yeah. Uh, can you please now say bow wow as I pull on your mane? <laughs> Dude, is it a horse or a dog? Because dogs don't have a mane. Um, when I asked about Karen, DeBartolaban said, she never really loved me. And I don't want to kill Karen. I want to punish her. So he just hates Karen. Yeah, Karen was the source of his anger and hatred towards most women, along with his mother. But the guy was a textbook definition of a sexual sadist. The suffering of his victims is what stimulated him sexually. I mean, he wanted to completely dominate and control these women. And then and that was it. He wanted... And, and some of his wives even said this. He wanted them to look at him as a god. Uh, yeah, it, this guy's a fucking asshole. No, he's a, a complete and utter prick. 
So by the time the investigators pieced together all the evidence against DeBartolaban, um, he faced 11 indictments, including two for murder in nine states. Among these indictments were six charges for counterfeiting, sodomy, robbery, and armed criminal action, kidnapping, and a federal kidnapping charge in Baltimore. So they had a bunch of evidence. They had all these photos that were taken from the storage unit, which he completely denied. But there were distinguishing marks, such as moles and scars on his body that matched the scars in the, in the man in the photo. Um, they had handwriting samples. Uh, he had to give head and uh, pubic hair samples, which they tied <laughs> to, the, to the victims. I thought you, when you did that little pause, I mean, it was like he had to give head to the agents. <laughs> I'm sure you'd think that. Um, he was tried and convicted based upon the forensic evidence here, victim's testimony, and witnesses' identification, six separate cases for counterfeiting, kidnapping, and assault. And he received a total sentencing of 375 years. Was this a public trial? I'm wondering why this guy wasn't, isn't as well-known as, like, Bundy and Dahmer and Largely all Largely anonymous. I, you know, it's kind of weird because I think, like, in terms of scale, he's definitely up there with them, if And not I just worse. mean in terms of... Of sadism too. He's he is just as disgusting as Bundy. Oh, I mean Bundy is also a necrophiliac. I don't know if this guy's going back and shagging the dead. Uh, DeBartolaban represented himself in court the whole time. Oh, bless! Just like that, Bundy said that the Secret Service planted all this evidence. It wasn't his, um, and then even denied witness identifications. You know, multiple women you know, identify them on the stand. This now, there guy are other... is such a narcissist. That, that's the other thing. Most sexual sadists are. Uh, the yep. other states involved in the indictments against uh, DeBartolaman and ended up forgoing the lengthy trials because by the time this guy would be eligible for parole, he'd be 100 years old. And so when he was in prison, he spent a lot of his time corresponding with Ted Bundy. I was and... just about to bring that up about Ted Bundy because to me... Um, Debadaladum is actually a sadist because he's not showing any weakness or any no. empathy. Whereas Bundy did actually show weakness and empathy. I mean, he cried in court. He did all of that, which is not a sign of an actual true sadist. This guy is a real sadist. Well, he's a, he's a narcissist terrifying. too. I think he thought that you know he'd gotten away with his, these crimes for eighteen years. I think he thought he was untouchable. Yeah. But I mean, uh, but, this guy has shown no empathy, no, no nothing. That's no. why I think he's like more terrifying on a level that Bundy wasn't. No, he's remorseless. Um, but he would communicate with Ted Bundy and he put together numerous appeals, probably with Bundy's help because Bundy was a lawyer, wasn't he? Or no, he was a diet lawyer. He never diet finished. Lawyer, yeah. um, he denied his crimes to his death and he claimed that the Secret Service manufactured evidence against him. Um, he was never brought to trial for murder which is kind of odd, even though he was the principal suspect in two homicides and remains a suspect in like several others. Uh, eventually, uh, uh, early 2011, he died of pneumonia at the Federal, Federal Medical Center in Butner, North Carolina at the age of 70. Butner. Well, Butner. that's why he's not remembered as high canon because he, ne he never stood trial for murder. Not but for had murder, he yeah. done, he would be up there for sure. There'd be Netflix documentaries about this guy. I'm surprised there isn't though. I mean, the guy was a, Car thief, con artist, bank robber, forger, kidnapper, rapist, and suspected serial murder, murderer. You know, you think he's almost committed every known felony that you could commit. Yeah. You know, um, a lot of the uh, authorities here consulted by the agents believe that his criminal history is unmatched anywhere for its sadism. 
And, you know, the scope, his scope and his success at eluding detection for 18 years. That's a long time. It is I mean, a long I'm, time. I'm sure there's serial killers who have never been caught, but obviously we'd never know. But this guy, you know, passed counterfeit bills, raped, murdered women for 18 years without being caught. It's crazy. Um, not only the Secret Service, but federal, state, local law enforcement officials across the U.S., along with judges and prosecutors, would tell these Secret Service agents, uh, Foos, Mertz, and Stevens, that DeBartolaven was the most dangerous felon ever at large in America. I can agree with that in a lot of ways. It's interesting. It's like a, a felon. I'd never heard of the guy until I started looking yeah. into the Secret Service. I do have a great, a great quote from him which I think sums him up perfectly. He says that, I feel that I have been unjustly tormented, degraded, and shit upon by society, specifically the American justice system, which is rotten to the core. In order to regain an adequate self-image, I feel compelled to somehow restore my self-respect. If I were to shit upon society for an adequate monetary gain, commiserate with the pain that I have suffered and not ca get caught, it would accomplish my objective. <laughs> The pain that he suffered, sure. He wants to shit upon society. <laughs> I think you've done that, mate, when you were, like, killing women yeah, who didn't deserve like any of this, and his wives, too. Well, there you go, people. Go check out that book, though, Zero Fail. It sounds interesting. I'm, I'm definitely going to pick that yeah. up. Yeah. This is episode uh, 850 here is Sick and Wrong. Got some phone calls coming up next, 323-522-4032. But first, here's a quick message from Adam and Eve. It's Butt Plug Month on AdamandEve.com. Show that you still care by bringing something new into the bedroom. And by something new, I mean a butt plug. Because if you order right now and use coupon code DIDDLE, you get 50% off your first item, a gift so sensual I can't even tell you about it on this podcast that talks about murder and bukkake, and on top of all of that, free shipping. Support Sick and Wrong by supporting our sponsor, adamandeve.com, and making a purchase with coupon code DIDDLE. That's D-I-D-D-L-E. So we got a few phone calls to get to here. 323-522-4032 is that number. Or people, you can email the show too at sickgroundpodcast at uh, gmail.com. So the, the first call we have here is from Gino about my uh, recent colonoscopy. Ooh. <laughs> I'm holding up for a hero. I'm holding up for a hero to the end of the night. He's gotta be strong, he's gotta be D, and he's gotta be younger than life. I'm impressed by your... Catchy. That's catchy. I was into it. Do you want what to put it on your own personal playlist and just listen to it on repeat? I think I would make it my ringtone. <laughs> to um, take the uh, anal probing, I thought I'd uh, just give you some sort of... Uh, recompense for that um, horrible scenario to go through and uh, I hope that your bowels are still intact alright take care you know funny you should mention that there Gino I was reading about you know Travis Barker was hospitalized recently Yeah, pancreatitis from a colonoscopy you know what's funny about those two is they had a black wedding and obviously we had a black wedding but our wedding was first you had your colonoscopy first what next what are they going to oh. copy us next on what are we in like parallel lives or something yeah we're the poor version yeah <laughs> we're the poor version of them 
Um, but yeah, you know, the pancreatitis actually kind of common for people that colonoscopies. It's kind of scary. It's not good. He's already like, you know, he survived a plane crash. I imagine he's not going to be living long after. Yeah, he's, so, you know, that, that he, guy's got to have some like prevailing health issues. He had third degree burns. Like, yeah. it's got to fuck you up and like shorten your life in some way. You know what? Uh, thank you, Gino, um, for the uh, the sentiment. I appreciate it. I think I think it's kind of funny if you read the comments on the video uh, posted. So I made a video on YouTube, which it's linked to on Facebook. I think uh, you can see it on Facebook. I don't remember if I posted it on uh, my main page or the group page, but it's a longer video of um, like a couple minutes long of um, just pre pre colonoscopy. Post colonoscopy on a lot of drugs, pretty funny. But then Kate Rambo made her own remix of it, which is funnier, and also down to about a minute. And it's it's it cracks me up reading the people's comments because some of the people that are older that have had to endure this procedure, are like, oh, good luck, D. Hope you're okay. You know, it happens to the best of us. But then a lot of the younger people are like, great farts, dude, because because <laughs> you 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 know you, they fill your colon up with hot air. That's what they do. It's, it's not like you're farting, you know, fecal matter. It's like they fill you full of air so they can expand your colon so they can see the, you know, the walls of your large intestine. And so afterwards, you're put in a recovery room. Like, there are like eight dudes in there. Just everyone's ripping farts. And we so, are all just animals at the end of the day. Yeah, you know, I was, I was recovering from it. And they, you know, they put you under. They gave me like the Michael Jackson drug. And I'm just like... Talking to the guy, you know, and on the you can hear on the video that I made, but I, I was talking to the guy. I'm like, so you can just rip farts in here, and there's this Indian guy's like, yes, just go rip a fart, yes. <laughs> I was just like, all right, I'll see if I can do it. And at the very end, guy must have ripped like a thirty second fart of just air. Yeah, just air. Yeah, it was gross. Um, but anyway, yeah, you can go uh, go go to the Sick and Wrong YouTube page. You can watch both videos. I think I posted both there. Uh, Kate's remix was a little funnier than mine. Mine's just the shocking truth. But people, <laughs> yeah, go get your ass checked. Colon cancer happens. It's a thing. It happens. Uh, it's it's actually prevalent men and women. You know, it's and so now they they're advising you to get checked at forty five. So uh, go get your ass checked. Um, thank you, Gino. Next call here. Tom Jones calls in with a story about DMT. <clears throat> Yeah, you're right, D. All right, Kate. It's Tom Jones here, a.k.a. Die Crack, uh, calling with a DMT story. Die so uh, the last couple of weeks, I've been getting into DMT, and I, I don't really do drugs no more. Um, them days are gone, I suppose. But, um, yeah, I've been getting into DMT, loving the fucking stuff. Um, uh, so last weekend, I had a breakthrough dose, went through to the next dimension, met an entity, uh, explained the intricacies of my life and the universe, completely opened my mind and my life hasn't been the same since um i think i went slightly psychotic from saturday until wednesday maybe <laughs> thursday but wait a second saturday till thursday how come you can get dmt in wales but you can't get it in cumbria i want some dmt i'm sure you could probably get it no Except there's no one i know who can get it. it's really hard to even get acid here don't people just make dmt a I'm chemist? not about to start like making up DMT for myself. I'm just like I'm too lazy. No, for you that. can't. I but I mean, I'm sure there's like some like I don't know university chemist that could just do it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there is, but I don't know them. 
and I don't know them from my trusted sources. I bet you can get it in Manchester. Again, I don't have trusted sources in Manchester. <laughs> I want it. In, I don't want to have to travel to get drugs. Order. Do you remember that uh, DMT cult that me and uh, Harrison did? Uh, it's, they were in the Netherlands. Order it from them. I could just order it from them. But then I have to, again, I have to write to a cult and then have to wait for the cult to write back to me. He, this, think... this dude is getting DMT in Wales. How? Yeah. Oh, maybe ask him to send, send you some. Too bad now. Uh, so anyway, um, after I had that breakthrough dose on a Saturday night, I left her and I would have saw, listened to Sick and Wrong uh, in my earphones and I decided to have another fucking trip. So just as I blast the fucking pipe, uh, G's, uh, G, fucking, who the fuck's G? D's signature, uh, dewy fucking drawl was pumping through my fucking ears. Uh, completely ruined my trip. I end. Of course it would. Could you imagine listening to my voice? That nasal like, Jewish voice telling yeah. you you're doing something wrong. When you're on psychedelics, I couldn't even imagine. It'd be terrible. Breaking through to the next dimension again, but I took D's fucking dewy fucking voice with me. So, uh, thanks, D. Not only have I been, you know, suffering. Your fucking voice for the last, I don't know, 14 fucking years. I've now taken your voice to the fucking afterlife for me. Thanks for that, you fucking bastard. Uh, anyway, um, I hope that proctologist, I don't know, chucks a fucking ghost up your ass and you end up dying of an owned arse all of a sudden, you fucking cunt. <laughs> I'd be like, hey, Tom Jones, let me tell you about my colonoscopy. I'll tell you about the liquid shit I had for about eight hours while you're tripping your balls off on DMT. Yeah, you're, you're a fun person to trip with. It's <laughs> <laughs> just what I want to hear when I'm tripping. Let me tell you about this. It was like coming out like black water straight out of my asshole. Yeah, I think I, Is it I like it? Evil Dead 2. Every color for blood except for, from red. I just don't recommend listening to this show while you're on psychedelics. I don't think I could like pay attention to a show while I'm on psychedelics. I, I just don't, I have a hard time with, with my attention span at the best of times, let alone when I'm tripping on acid or anything like that. I used to love watching The Simpsons. On the come down, yes, but on the, on the build up and when I'm high, I cannot be contained. I cannot be contained within four walls of, a, of a, any type of building. I have to be outside. I have to be outside in freedom. I just liked having it on the background. I mean, we'd be doing other stuff, talking, you know, talking, doing drugs, whatever. But just you could look at it and just maybe not even paying attention to the episode. The colors are great. Yeah, it was just kind of cool. Anyway, uh, um, enjoy your, your, your trip to the multiverse there, Tom Jones. Yeah, die uh, crack. Last call here is uh, from one of Kate's favorite callers. Hey, it's Tony. I'm at the call. Yeah. You asked me uh, what my sisters are doing. And I'm at, I think it's... 25 nieces and nephews now, so that should tell you a little something. Today I was going to talk to... 25? God, you're from a family of bimbos. Yeah, but that's a lot of Marshall Island town. A lot of perverts running around, you know? People with perverted genes. At Christmas time, like, do you just give them all, like, $2 each? Send them on their way? Yeah, give them a couple chocolate coins. That's what I would do. (laughs) A dreidel. (laughs) About some, um nocturnal activities in Japan, but I got a wild hair up my ass, and I'm going to make this one kind of educational and cultural and uh, talk about the heathen burial rites in Japan. Although I doubt anything Ooh. educational will do anything for the average sick and wrong listener. 
Anyway, um, one true. big difference in Japan is when someone dies, they usually don't keep the body in like a funeral home or a morgue. Um, they just keep it in the house with the family for the few days. So, for example, once a friend of mine, we were struggling to get a business going. And um, to save money, he was living with his girlfriend, seven, a 19-year-old girlfriend and her extended family, three generations. And during that time, her grandmother died. So he'd come in the office in the morning, you know, these fucking savages, there's a stinking dead body in my house. Of course, I thought it was hilarious. But a few years... That's got to be weird. You guys do that, though. Not, we don't keep the body in the house. I thought during the shiver, the body was there. No way. You said shiva right. afterwards. You have a, you know, the body goes to the funeral home. You have your funeral. And the shiva is just the memorial period seven days after. You don't have, oh, right. the, it's like not a like a wake. You don't have the body there. I know, like, yeah, the Catholics, the Irish, they all have, like, you know, the, the body in the living room. You can come and kiss it, do whatever you want. It's so wait, it's in their living room. It's not in a funeral home. No, they, a lot of them will just have it in their living room. But for how long? Just hanging for multiple days? It is embalmed, though. So I don't know if um, Marshall Antonio is saying there's no embalming. They're just, like, rotting in your living room. It would stink. Yeah, but does the body smell after three days? Of course it does. Like, as soon as, as, soon as you die, the petrification uh, process begins. You start to decompose. After three days, you are going to be stinking up the fucking joint. I think it would take longer to be that stinky. It doesn't. It honestly doesn't. You'll be stanking up the area within like 24 hours. I just couldn't imagine like going to the kitchen and go get your coffee, walking by dead grandma in the living room. What are they watching TV with her right there? I just would not be able to resist the urge to fuck with the cops. Not fuck the cops. Yeah, I was about to say, did you say fuck the corpse? I would, I would be poking it with pens. I'd be doing like, you know, just every getting strap on dildo. And just like doing all types, I just would not be able to resist the urge. It's like when you come across like a dead badger in the woods, you get you get a stick, you fucking kick it with your foot, you do all that stuff to it. And I would just not be able to tamper with the cops. It would be hard for me to resist, you know, picking up the body and putting it in my sister's bed while she's sleeping. Like, wouldn't you just want to like hardcore slap it as well? Just like in, a freeze, like in a free stooges type wave, just like no. slapping it. I would really that. want to slap a corpse. Maybe draw a little Hitler mustache with a Sharpie, but that's yeah, about it. Yeah, so do all that stuff, put horrible makeup on grandma. I just, you just couldn't leave me alone in a room with a corpse, I think. I just think. And then eventually just... I would fuck it because it would get to that point. As I was about to say, I wouldn't trust you. Alone with a corpse. <laughs> Just considering what you've said about necrophilia in the past on the show. My mother-in-law died. Unfortunately, she was living a ways away, so I didn't have the dead body in the house thing. But I went to the funeral. In the first part, it was just some these, a Buddhist monk you know, chanting his sutras. And after that, we went to the crematoria. I won't make any snide comments about Uncle Adolf and the Jews. Anyway, they had a little ceremony that. there. And then they you know, kicked the pyre, lit the fire chucked her inside and um while she's roasting we went and went to a restaurant for a few hours and when we went back to the crematoria they had they, they pulled the body out well the slab the body was on and they had fried in such a way so that a light outline of the bones remained and then they passed these big chopsticks around and everyone take 
took turns breaking off little pieces of the bone and putting it in this um it wasn't a Folgers can, it was some, some kind of urn. And then later took the urn to the family grave, <laughs> many generations. Wait, wait a second. So they put her on like a hibachi or something, fried her. Yeah. And then you get to just take these large chopsticks and just pick out a piece that you want? And put it in your Folgers can and just like go like, here's grandma. No, but I mean, was it an urn that everybody put a piece in the urn and then you take the urn? Or did, or was it your own personal little memento? Oh, no, I think you're putting it all in one collective urn. Okay, so you didn't get like a little a little thing. I would fir- I would be the a first keepsake. person that go in the gold teeth of mine. You can all fuck off. I'm taking the gold teeth. Mine. <laughs> Dibs on the teeth. <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't think I'd want a gold teeth. But I wouldn't mind just taking like a fragment of something and just have it. Why not? Yeah, like a gold tooth that you can then take to a pawn shop and sell. That's what I want. God, and I'm the Jew. No, I, I think I would take like, you know, like a, a piece of a finger or a piece of a jaw or something and then like put it in resin and just have it, you know? Yeah, and just put it in your cure cabinet and then show it to people and be like, oh, yeah, this is my grandma. That's my grandma. Yeah, I like that. It's interesting, though. How big are the chopsticks? Yeah. And I, I want to know. Are these just like, you know, comical in in size, like these big I love the, chopsticks. I love the fact the Japanese are like, "Can we involve chopsticks in this?" Yes. Yeah. It's, okay. It's cool. Interesting. Bring them out. These are buried together, and you just kind of open it up and stick the stick it inside. So that's basically how it works there. I guess um, one disadvantage of the system is it ruins your chance to be molested by a certain palm pod crafter who thinks <laughs> there's Rambo. nothing wrong with playing with the dead but i guess it cuts down a lot on cemetery space anyway that's all yeah. i got to hope to enlighten you a tiny bit well you know you know what the uh i think the most interesting takeaway from this story is what marshall island tony's married he said he was at his mother-in-law's funeral yeah i i knew he was married i didn't know Did he was married? married what does your wife think about your past does, does she know what happened in the philippines well, if his wife is anything like me, she probably gets horny over it. Does she know what happened in the Marshall Islands? I want to know, like, how much does your wife know about your, your checkered past there, Tony? Checkered or, like, she's probably, well, I mean, judging Colorful. by the amount of nieces and nephews that he has. They're all, uh, there's a lot of bimbos in Tony's life. Let's put it like that. What do you think? Marshall Island Tony's probably, what, 40s, early 40s? Yeah. So do you think it's just kind of like, oh, you know, he's a young guy, and that's what young guys did back then. Like It's what they do in the military. his wild oats. Anyway, Marshall Island Tony, thank you for the the, the lesson in Japanese culture. I had no idea. That's something I never even really thought about. I do love Marshall Island. The burial uh, rights. Um, But I do want to know how much your wife is privy to, uh, to your past. Your Have you history. ever been on holiday with her to the Marshall Islands? Yeah, but why would he take her there? Because it's his old stomping ground. And maybe. I wonder. I wonder if like he's allowed back on the island. Didn't they run him off with like pitchforks? <laughs> no, because <laughs> he'll like, go torches? there and be like, that kid looks like me. That kid looks like <laughs> me. That kid looks like me. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's a bunch of like uh, mixed Marshallese white kids running around. <laughs> anyway, people call the Sigma Hotline 323-522-4032. Uh, we got to get out of here. Um, quick uh, 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 promo about our uh, our Patreon uh, our Patreon page. Uh, we do a second show. Do a second show every week. So this is the main show. is what you're listening to right now. But then there's a whole hour and a half, sometimes an hour and a half, sometimes less, a second show that we do on Patreon every week. Uh, this week, uh, we were chatting about, uh, you can hear all about the graphic details of my colonoscopy. You know, I went into explicit detail about it and the prep. Wow. Um, we also learn about Kate's undying love and admiration for the band Sum 41. It's her favorite band. You find out I about like that. Sum 41. Get over it. <laughs> we also hear a no story fility. about, uh, you know, actually, have you seen a picture of the guy from Sum 41 these days? Yeah, he's a fat cunt, but that oh, doesn't mean that they weren't great in the early 2000s. He's a he's a stuff of horror. Like you look yeah, at that right. guy. He's like he's frightening looking. Uh, we also hear a story about a former Days of Our Lives actress turned Ozark's big shot, who tried to arrange the murder of her ex mother in law. It's a it's a it's a Coen Brothers film. Yeah, it's in a the good making. Story. Anyway, um, go check that out. Second show, five dollars a month. That's all. That's all it takes. Five bucks a month, and you get a whole uh, second show. And on Overkill this week, Kate chants with Bob Murda from uh, um, Defense Diaries. Bob. Bob Mata. Bob Mata. About the uh, recent West Memphis Three uh, being denied the right to uh, to test the DNA evidence, which is crazy. Yeah. Damien Eccles, it is mental. And like, it's such... Yeah. A- anyone who followed the West Memphis case who thinks that those three are guilty, you are out of your fucking minds. Oh, it's so obvious it was a stepdad. And the fact that they're not testing DNA evidence that would prove that, is yeah, I mean it's a travesty. It's insane. Well, it, yeah, it was great to talk to like uh, obviously a legit lawyer about all like the kind of ins and outs of the cases and why they're not testing the. DNA yeah, and I'm, I'm gonna have to check that out. It's interesting. Yeah, I'm just I can't understand the thought process of the judge. But that's on overkill this week, and also at the same level, once you uh, uh, just ten bucks a month, you get access to all of the sick and wrong archives. It's ten years, a decade of sick and wrong. Um, I put it all on uh, SoundCloud so you get all these playlists. You can access them on your phone. So patreon.com slash sick and wrong. Support the show. Keep it sick and wrong. We do appreciate it. Also, I think a a good idea, if you want to have fun, I should have said this last week, but if you want to have fun uh, tormenting your MAGA uncle, get my own version of the MAGA tea that I'm selling at Public. Make abortion great again. I think it's it's that is the perfect tea to wear to a family event. It doesn't have to be a Fourth of July barbecue. It could be another summer barbecue. But just show up. They're gonna look at it and be like, "Oh, he's wearing a maga tea." But then, as they get closer, you're like, "Oh, make abortion great again." Smart Alec. You and know, that can start the annual family argument. Yeah, exactly. It's gonna start the uh, the annual. Uh, uh, family debate. So uh, just go to sickerongpodcast.com slash shop, click on the picture of the Pope, and uh, buy yourself a, uh, a sickerong tea. Uh, finally, here, sickerong song of the week. I wanted to find something that's topical 
And, uh, you know, as uh, we can dedicate to this, uh, this country, this fine country that I live in, uh, that you soon will live in. We're going to end the show here with a, a song called American in Me uh, by punk band The Avengers. Fucking great awesome band. band. Yeah, great band. Uh, the Avengers were an American punk rock band formed in 1977 in San Francisco. Uh, they only recorded just an EP called We Are The One, a very expensive EP, in 1977. Um, and then they didn't release a full album before uh, uh, breaking up in 79. So their their first album came out in, like, uh, I think it was, like, 1982. They're full. Yeah, lots, lots of the best punkers were just EP albums, and the Avengers but, are one of them. You know, after they broke up, though, uh, they worked with Steve Jones, who produced a yeah. lot of their songs. And uh, th- so this new album that came out, or it's not a new album, it came out in like 2004, but this, it's a compilation called American and Me with the song American and Me, but it also includes uh, the, the takes of the Steve Jones sessions on it. I have to pick this oh, up. Nice. I don't have it. Yeah. It's got a, also has a live concert recorded at the old Waldorf in San Francisco, which I've heard is just an amazing venue. It was before my time there. Um, but yeah, Penelope Houston's kind of like one of those punk rock, like, you know, icons. It's just never really recognized. Yeah. She does get it totally forgotten about. She's fucking great. I love her. I mean, she was one of the first like real female punk rockers. Especially from the uh, West Coast, yeah. Yeah, there wasn't many. Like there weren't that many from the East. Yeah, most. I think everyone's always like you know they always say like uh, Patti Smith, Debbie Harry, um, but they never. Chrissy uh, Hines, yeah. Yeah, Chrissy Hines, all that, but they 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 never really mentioned the West Coast ones. So, so well, yeah, you know, people go check out Niagara the Avengers. Detroit gets forgotten about all the fucking uh, Detroit. Oh yeah, She's Detroit's always best. overlooked. Yeah, Niagara, Niagara, Detroit's always overlooked. But the Detroit scene in general is usually overlooked as well, Sadly. unfortunately. Um, but yeah, people go check out uh, check out the Avengers. Um, amazing band, great band. And we're gonna end the the show here with uh, with the song "American in Me," uh, dedicated to all the people eating sloppy joes at their family barbecue. Have a safe and happy Fourth of July to all the Yanks out there, and don't get too drunk and try to impress your friends and family by shooting bottle rockets out of your ass. I've read that's one of the most common Fourth of July injuries, believe it or not. Um, be smart don't be a statistic we'll be back next week with episode 851 till then take it sleazy
Hey Decker, this is Vince Neal. I want to say uh, happy birthday, brother. Uh, this is actually from uh, uh, Christian, Mom, Ethan, and Blake. So uh, keep on rocking, shout the devil, and uh, and do yeah, do some feel good stuff in four in big old big old four row, you man. All right, see you later.